we were confident that the president wouldn't be removed because of the substance of our arguments, but we didn't take it for granted. And we also didn't feel like any of the senators were in our pocket. We felt very much like they were the jurors and we had to, uh, we had to litigate accordingly. Welcome to Real Impeachment. This is Ross Garber, and today's guest is Lanny Brewer. Lanny was the special counsel to the President of the United States, President Clinton, during his impeachment process, during the investigation by Ken Starr, the independent counsel, and then the investigation by the House of Representatives that led to President Clinton's impeachment, and then uh, in the Senate trial. Lanny and I talk about his experience during that process, what he thought of it, how it worked, and then his reflections on the current process. Because I think one of the things that's going to result from the Trump impeachment process is a reevaluation, a reevaluation of how we do impeachments, how we do the impeachment investigation process in the House how and why we do an impeachment, how we do an impeachment trial in the Senate. And so I was very interested to talk with Lanny about his reflections on his experience and then also his sense of how things should be done. Notably, he wrote a an open letter, which was published in the Washington Post, to Pat Sopoloni, the president's counsel, uh, the White House counsel, related to the White House counsel's approach to Congress during uh, this impeachment process, specifically the House of Representatives. It was a very interesting conversation that Lanny and I had. I've known uh, Lanny Brewer a bit for uh, for quite a long time, and uh, it was uh, very interesting to talk with him about these issues. It's something that he and I have not talked about, and I hope you enjoy it. So, Lenny, uh, you worked in the Clinton White House, and, and my recollection is uh, that it was Chuck Ruff, the White House counsel, who brought you in. You guys worked together in private practice. Is that how it worked? Well, it is right. Uh, Chuck was my mentor, and I worked very closely with him in private practice. But for an odd coincidence, it was actually Jack Quinn, Chuck's predecessor, who initially interviewed me for the job. And then while I was transitioning to go to the White House, it just turned out that my mentor, Chuck, became the new White House counsel. So I worked with Chuck. I was there with him for the first day. But actually, through another matter that I had, it was Jack Quinn, Chuck's predecessor, who reached out to me about the job. And and what was the job that you were interviewing for? I, I was the special counsel to the president. And back then... Uh, because of all of the independent counsel investigations, the campaign finance investigations, there was just a torrent of investigations surrounding the Clinton White House. And the thought was that there needed to be a lawyer in charge day to day of all the investigations with the team, and that he or she would be in charge of the investigation so that the rest of the White House could continue to do the work of the country. And so I got hired to do that. And so when I started, Ross, 
I was literally in charge of the many independent counsel investigations, the star investigation, but there were others as well. Uh, and I had a, a team of lawyers and legal assistants who worked with me. And who came up with that structure? Because it's it, it's one that I think people think worked. And I, I've, I've actually implemented it for a lot of governor's offices. I think it worked really well. And um, it had begun in the first term. And it would become more or less active depending on uh, uh, how serious things were with respect to the investigation. So it began in the first term. Uh, my predecessor, Jane Sherburn, was the first special counsel who did this. I was the second. And I think because of the time, we can be romantic about it and say it was all so calm. But, but in fact, there was fierce partisanship then. Uh, there were a lot of investigations, congressional investigations and the like. And, and whether it was John Podesta or someone before him, uh, there was a decision made that for the White House to be effective, for the president to really do the business of the country, there needed to be a group of people in charge of the investigations and everybody else could do their day job. And, and that was very much what my job was. And um, and really what I did up through the impeachment uh, trial. And, and did you report up to the White House counsel? I reported directly to the White House counsel, but I also reported to the deputy chief of staff and chief of staff. So my direct superior was clearly Chuck Ruff. But John Podesta, for instance, when he was a leader of the White House, also uh, would get briefings from me as well. So it, I, I reported to both. You know, you were doing that for the White House, and Williams and Connolly was representing the president personally? That's exactly right. We were, and we took it very seriously, we were counsel to the office of the president. We were not Bill Clinton's personal lawyers. We were not purely President Clinton's lawyers. We had an institutional duty and fealty to the office of the president of the United States. There must have been times where that was difficult to to separate, though, right? Yeah. I mean, I'll give you a great example, and we'll jump right into it, Ross. I mean, I have a picture of Chuck Ruff in my office here at Covington. I've always had it. But I remember vividly Chuck, who was one of the greatest lawyers I've ever known and one of the great patriots I've ever known, saying to me the when when the president got the, the a grand jury subpoena or the like, he said, no president can refuse to comply with a subpoena. Now, if you were the personal lawyer of Bill Clinton, you might have taken a different view, as any criminal defense lawyer may take on behalf of his or her client. But we felt very strongly that as lawyers to the office of the president, uh, the, the institutions of this country were of paramount importance. And so though we would fight hard for the president, I think we were incredibly zealous advocates for for the president and the office of the president. Nonetheless, we felt very much that you had to abide by a subpoena. Uh, it, you know, I wrote to Pat Cipollone in an open letter, you know, a couple of months ago in the Washington Post, and, and I expressed my view. That continues to be my view. And so there was um, very different roles, and Williams and Connolly represented the man, Bill Clinton, 
and we represented the office of the president, and Bill Clinton happened to be the president in that office. And I may, I may ask you a little more about that that open letter to to Pat Cipollone. But how did how how did the interactions between you and Williams and Conley work then? Did you have a, a common interest agreement? You, you you must have interacted, right? We interacted. We had almost no common interest or other agreements. Um, there was a lot, a lot of mutual respect. I, I think that all of the lawyers um, respected one another a lot and liked one another a lot. But there were differences. There were conversations, for instance, that Williamson Conley would have had with the president that I certainly didn't have, and I don't think Chuck had. Uh, we knew that our privilege was probably not paramount. I mean, you know, obviously Ken Starr issued a subpoena for me in the very beginning and Bruce Lindsay and others with respect to um, some of the conduct that in the White House and, our, and wanted to know what we were involved in and argued that we did not have an absolute privilege because we were uh, government lawyers. And, and as a result of that, we, we were, we, we, I always thought we should have a, a stronger privilege. I always thought it was important, but obviously the Supreme Court had ruled in that. And so for sure, the personal lawyers had an absolute privilege and had one set of conversations with the president and there certainly were conversations that we and certainly I were not a part of. Did you consciously sort of excuse yourself from meetings with with David Kendall and and the president? No, or- I just wouldn't have been invited. First of all, Ross, just to be clear, I mean, I, I, I mean, it was an amazing job. It was the honor of my life to be in that job. But but I, you know, I was uh, in my 30s and I wasn't the most senior lawyer. So. In the ordinary course, there would have been some meetings I wouldn't have gone to in any event. But I don't remember ever stepping out of a meeting, but I'm pretty confident that there would have also been meetings that uh, between Williams and Conley and the president that I just wouldn't have been invited to in the first place. And you were hired before the uh, the House impeachment process kicked off, oh, right? Oh, way before, Ross. I mean, I start there... In, in the very beginning of the second term in 97. I mean, I really got hired because of the other investigations, particularly the campaign finance investigation. So most of a lot, I wouldn't say most, a lot of my time was spent defending the White House and the president in the campaign finance investigation. And there were many hearings in Congress. There was a campaign finance task force the DOJ had. And so, you know, I remember to this day the first time I ever heard the name Monica Lewinsky, and it was in, you know, it was in probably early 1998. I'd never heard of her and didn't know anything about her. So I'd been in my job for, you know, over a year before we had even heard of her. I had even heard of her. I think one of the things that's going to come out of this Trump process is an evaluation reevaluation of how the House and the Senate exercise their their impeachment and removal power. I, I, I want to kind of bring you back to that House process where, you know, Ken Starr, you know, famously, you know, delivered his report and a whole bunch of boxes of documents to the House. And then uh, the House had to figure out what to do with them. And the House wound up you know, largely relying on the star investigation and not doing much additional work. I, I'd be interested in getting your your reflections on on that process. Did it work? Did it not work? 
I'm happy to. Sure. So, I mean, if you take a step back, you know, by the time um, that Ken Starr in black vans that were covered uh, by television, and, of course, this was the beginning of cable TV. It was nothing like today. But yet this was as sensational as it gets, right? There were black vans slowly driving to the to the Capitol with boxes and boxes of, of stars report and all the appendices to them. And that, of course, was in, I think, September of 98. Ross, by that point, Ken Starr had been investigating President Clinton for four years, four years. And he had gone through a litany of issues, all of them, and all of them had basically come to naught. The Whitewater deal, the the Vince Foster suicide, the travel office. You can go on and on and on. And and there was none of it. And really, Starr, as I recall, I may have it wrong, had already announced that he was going to go to Pepperdine. He was being criticized by his by the Republicans, uh, uh, at least on the far right, that after all these years, what did he have to show for it? And they had just investigated the president throughout and then, like Mana from Heaven, in my view, um, you know, he will learn about uh, Linda Tripp, who will tell him about Monica Lewinsky. Tripp will wear a, a secret wire to trip up and trick this young woman, Monica Lewinsky, and then star and everyone, of course, descend on her. And then, of course, soon thereafter, there there is a deposition of the president in the Paula Jones case, and and. And, and, of course, the, the lawyers who were deposing the president were trying to get him into a perjury trap and setting him up because they knew uh, they had just heard about Monica Lewinsky, started, knew about it, and, and the president was unaware of that. And, by the way, I, I was not involved in the Paulie Jones case. I was, again, personal lawyers. In that case, it was, you know, Bob Bennett at the yeah. time. But, in any event, that, that was four years. And so— by the time of September of 98, um, there, the, the amount of investigation of the president for four years, had, it was just indescribable. And the report came, and in my view, the report was written to really embarrass, to embarrass the president of the United States. There were parts of the report that were basically pornographic. Yeah. And it was voluminous. And if I recall, the Congress got the report and it released the report within two days. The Republican House released it. And the only reason it released it, no one could have gone through it, was because it was embarrassing and devastating to the president. This has nothing to do with the underlying nature of what he did. I mean, we acknowledge that the president will end up apologizing repeatedly one of the stark differences with today. But but I do believe you're right. The, the House didn't do a lot of independent investigation because there wasn't a lot of independent investigation to be done. Uh, everything was out. Uh, the president, by this point, has acknowledged his relationship with Lewinsky. The, the real issue was, is this an issue of constitutional import or not for the president to have had this liaison with Monica Lewinsky. It was fundamentally different than today. Uh, there were no witnesses who were not interviewed. 
there were no witnesses who had relevant information who we didn't know what they had to say. Everybody had been interviewed so much. The only thing left to do was to decide what does this all mean from a constitutional perspective. And maybe as a result of that, the way the process was structured in the House was, you know, Ken, as you remember, Ken Starr testified and then David Kendall got to examine him for like a half an hour and then there were presentations and that was pretty much it, right? That was it. I mean, we did have, yes, that was basically it. You know, we were able to present, Shock will end up speaking and presenting on the defense of the president. We were able to get um, panels of either, like you heard this, I'm constitutional experts or former members of Congress who had served during the Nixon impeachment to try to talk from our perspective about does this sexual liaison between Clinton and Monica Lewinsky and the fact that he didn't acknowledge it in a civil deposition, is this of such import that it should result in the impeachment, much less the removal of the president? But the House proceedings were exactly as you say, basically star with David um, cross-examining him briefly. I think in the end, it ended up not being a half an hour, which is why I thought, I think... It's like 45 minutes. Back, I think he had a full hour, but still woefully too little. Chuck having basically a day to present, an expert sort of talking about whether or not this rises to the level of, of an impeachable offense. That seemed to be, at least in part, the model that was used for the Trump process but as you say, it was really different where, you know, in Clinton, the facts weren't so much in dispute. It was a question of what the the remedy was. And uh, and but even then in in the Clinton process, uh, the rules provided that you were allowed uh, to be there. The, the president's lawyers were allowed to, to be there, were allowed to to put on a case, were allowed to cross-examine Ken Starr because... Yeah, I mean, you're right, Russ. I mean, look, you're right. The, the, the facts weren't in dispute. The president had apologized profusely, so he didn't claim that he hadn't done it. By the time we're here, he's fully acknowledged it. Um, we did have a chance to present. We thought woefully too little, not enough. I mean, I remember then in my mind, I'm pretty naive, but I, to the last minute never believed that the House would actually impeach. I mean, the Republicans didn't like Clinton, and we can talk a little bit, in my view, about how President Clinton acted and was perceived and how President Trump acts and is perceived, and some of that may affect us too. But I thought, till the end, being a naive lawyer, that the House would agree ultimately to censure the president. It never... I never believed that, based on no more than the relationship with Monica Lewinsky, that the House would actually impeach the president. And, of course, that's exactly what happened. Um, I don't believe back in the day, which is different now, I don't believe that the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, Henry Hyde, wanted to impeach. I think he probably would have agreed in censure. But the leadership of the Republican Party, Newt Gingrich, DeLay, they were pretty hell-bent on wanting the president impeached, and ultimately, of course, with their power, they prevailed. I think that may be another thing that comes out of this Trump process is this notion of 
doing an impeachment where you know you're not going to get a removal because, as you allude to, uh, even if they did an impeachment, then you still knew they they weren't going to get a removal of Clinton. Well, let me tell you one thing on that. I think that's basically right. But but I want to, for one minute, talk about Ross, why I think it's a little different. You're right. Even though there was a Republican majority in the Senate, first of all, it was entirely different. Daschle and Lott uh, made it clear to us that the Senate was going to act as much as it could in a bipartisan manner. And in the very beginning of the impeachment uh, trial in the Senate, the hundred senators themselves, I'll never forget this, decided to meet in the old Senate chamber. And it was just a hundred senators. It was no staff, no, no anyone else. And that sent a pretty loud message to all of us that the Senate was going to act as an institution uh, as a constitutionally important player, and that these hundred senators uh, were going to try to act as much as they could uh, as a as a responsible part of the legislative branch. And so, even though we were relatively confident that the president would not be removed, I and others never took it for granted. And one difference that I see is that you know. I happen to think President Clinton was a great law, a great president, but President Clinton wasn't widely loved. He certainly wasn't uh, someone who came from the Senate. And there were lions in the Senate and lions on the Democratic Party. You know, Senator Robert Byrd, who was, you know, among, if not the, you know, with Strom Thurmond, Byrd may have been the longest serving senator and the, and really prided himself on on, on, on fighting for and loving the, the, the role and the importance of the Senate. But you had Senator Feinstein, you had Senator Kennedy and Lieberman, and you had Pat Moynihan from New York. Um, we did not take for granted that if we tried this case in, in, in a different way, that some Democratic senators m- might decide to vote differently. Not because they thought... It was um, uh, constitu- of constitutional import. But if the Senate trial had become too untoward or if we had been too disrespectful, uh, if, if things had gotten, um, you know, to a degree of discussions of sex uh, to a point that senators thought this was too unseemly, you could have seen different ways that this played out. So my point isn't that we, we were confident that the president wouldn't be removed because of the substance of our arguments, but we didn't take it for granted. And we also didn't feel like any of the senators were in our pocket. We felt very much like they were the jurors and we had to, uh, we had to litigate accordingly. How did the rules get set up? Because the, the rules for the Clinton trial were different than the rules for any other impeachment trial, similar to the Trump trial. Yeah, I don't really have the strongest um, memory. I kind of believe that Daschle and Lott and their staffs basically figured it out. I can't tell you that there wasn't 
discussions with the managers and not some discussions with the White House. But but for the most part, as I recall, it really came about as a result of what the what uh, it was. It was sort of a bipartisan agreement among the Senate. Um, that's how I'm remembering it. And um, and we worked within that. I mean, I I think, you know, as you probably remember, there's some of the same arguments then as today. The Republican managers wanted many witnesses. We did not. You know, we didn't think there was any facts in dispute. Of course, there were some witnesses. We had three witnesses as opposed to now. Yeah, I mean, it came, that came but, up but later, the right? Himself, I think the leadership, the leadership in the Senate is is what basically drafted that. See, yeah, that, I mean, that's that's interesting. I, I had Bob Barr on uh, who talked about being unhappy with the rules, um, thinking that they cut the manager's legs out from under them. Uh, and, you know, it just led me to wonder, well, you know, if the, if the managers weren't specifically uh, behind the drafting of these rules, and it, it, it sounds like uh, – the the Clinton lawyers weren't necessarily behind the drafting of the rules. It sounds like it 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 was probably mostly motivated by institutional interests of the Senate, right? I think it was. And look, I think back then what you had was, you know, look, I think the Democrats probably didn't want an overly long impeachment trial if it could be avoided. The Republicans recognized that politically this was probably disastrous. The president's approval rating was in the was close to, if not above seventy percent. Um, after you know the it, it, right around the time of the the impeachment in the House, um, frankly, before the, the the impeachment in the House occurs, and and the uh, well, no, the impeachment hearings in the House occur, and then you have a, a midterm election. In the midterm election, the Republicans got a trouncing. Um, Gingrich will end up resigning the speakership. I mean, you have to remember, it was a raw time. You know, um, Bill Livingston was going to replace um, uh, Gingrich as the speaker. And literally on the day of the vote of the impeachment, it became uh, it became public that Livingston himself had had an affair. And one of the great ironies was here was the president of the United States being impeached for having an affair. And a number of the leaders of Congress themselves had had affairs. So Livingston instead of becoming a speaker, will resign. And so it was a bloodbath for the Republicans. And so I think both the Democrats and the Republicans in the Senate thought they needed a dignified process, a process that probably would go, wouldn't go too long unless it needed to. And since no one disputed what the facts themselves were, I think there probably was some unanimity. I mean, the, you may recall that there was some drama during our impeachment, because without the Democrats or the Republicans or the president's lawyers knowing, the managers met with Ken Starr, and Ken Starr tried to force Monica Lewinsky to answer questions during the impeachment to him with the managers present. And that became public, and it became an explosion. And interestingly, even a number of Republican senators uh, were very critical of Ken Starr and of the managers for doing that. Um, so I think the managers were in a different place than the Republican senators.
at the end of the day, that there's this process that uh, that was used in Clinton that has now been pretty much used in Trump, where you get you know 24 hours each side for opening arguments, and then there's going to be a debate about witnesses. Do you have any general feelings about whether that process should be applied to future presidential impeachment trials? Well, you know, I'm no expert on this. I've I've done one. um, (laughs) Well, there aren't that many to do, right? Yeah, no, I know. I guess I'm an expert, (laughs) right, because I've done one. Look, obviously, impeachment trials are inherently political. And without being overly partisan, you can take either side and take their comments of 20 years ago and compare them to their comments today, and in almost every case, there'll be a real difference depending on who is the president. Um, You know, I don't think that this is a a particularly great process for trying to to find the truth. And, um, you know, in, in the Clinton impeachment, we knew the facts, and so There were depositions, there were witnesses, but frankly, Ross, there weren't any new facts that were revealed. We all knew it. You know, here I obviously, you know, I'm a Democrat, and obviously it won't shock you to know that I think there there should have been witnesses, and I think that, you know, we can then agree on what the facts are, and then we're allowed to have a a, a fair debate about whether that constitutes removal or not. But here you have, you know, a president who who denies the facts and others who deny the facts, and then it changes. And so when there's a changing evolution of what the facts are, and this is the topic of the impeachment, I think this process hasn't worked because I don't understand if there's a question of facts how the, the jurors themselves don't in one capacity or another want to hear the facts so that they can make a determination themselves. So by definition, I don't think this process works. And what about the criticism of, of of the House for not actually doing the investigation up front so that there wouldn't be have to be an investigation in the Senate? Yeah, well, look, you know, again, you know, th- th- these are really political questions. I don't believe that uh, the record in the House has to be the record in the Senate, right? I mean, there are a hundred different ways of analogizing this, and they're all imperfect. Obviously, you know, for one minute, as some have tried to do, if you analogize the House to the grand jury, which I don't, but if you do, obviously trials are not limited to the witnesses in the grand jury, and so it's hard for me to believe believe that. Um, I think the House, you know, made a political decision. They realized that... In this particular case, you had an administration that was 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 not agreeing to give them anything. It's unprecedented. I mean, I feel like, you know, we were so naive. We thought we were zealous and fought hard, but we, uh, uh, you know, I, I complied with every subpoena. You know, if I didn't agree with the subpoena, I explained what I didn't agree with. I remember one of the Republican chairmen saying to me in my first couple of weeks as special counsel that, There'd be a lot of investigations and they were going to subpoena us for records. And if we didn't provide the records, they would, you know, hold us and hold me in contempt. We took that very seriously and we complied with the subpoenas. So here you have a house that has to recognize that you have a a White House that's not complying with any subpoenas. It's, It's challenging the entire process. And they made a political decision that not to run out the clock, not 
given how long the courts are, that they had established enough of a record for the Senate to look at it further. And, and I'm, I'm in no position to be critical of the House for doing that. And frankly, I think the Senate then has its own duty to the Constitution in looking at the issues and making its own determination on what the record is. And, you know, if, if I were as a U.S. senator, I would have wanted to hear the witnesses and I would have wanted to make sure that I didn't miss anything. And you have someone like Bolton, who's an eyewitness, and you have the same White House and the same supporters of the White House saying there are no eyewitnesses, and here you have an eyewitness. You know, as you know, Ross, having tried so many cases, it defies any anything that we as lawyers know to to not hear from that witness. And so um, I, I, the Senate's decision disappoints me. It doesn't surprise me, yeah. but it disappoints me. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I appreciate all the, the time uh, you've given us. Uh, before I let you go, though, any any thoughts about what this process, this Trump impeachment and trial process means, if anything, for the the Senate and the House and the presidency as institutions? Yeah. So I guess my one concern, you know, is the is that institutions matter um, and you have to fight for the constitutional importance of those institutions. I worry that in this particular case, this particular president is feared. He's feared by the members of his own party. He's feared that that, that, that he will uh, challenge them personally, uh, that he will challenge them politically. And, and I hope that that is not the motivation that drove these senators to making the decisions they did. As an outsider, it does seem to me that this has not been a good time for Congress, that the um, constitutional uh, importance of Congress as an equal branch has been hurt, that the power of the presidency has never been stronger, and fear should not Trump, the fact that one branch is equally uh, important to another, and maybe that's a little bit why earlier I talked about the lines of the Senate, at least as I saw them in 1999, and I think we need some more lions of the Congress to protect the um, to protect the Congress and its power, because we we should not be. Um, a country that's overly reliant or worried or provides too much power to any one branch. And right now it sure seems as if that's what's occurred. Yeah. Well, that that's a good note to leave it on. Uh, hey, Lenny, thank you very much for doing this. I, I really appreciate it. Absolutely, Ross. It's really fun to do it. And uh, thanks for inviting me.